Hello! The winner is... Oh, well, sorry I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in Cinemaland. I, Oscar the Academy Award. Well, Regina's like this. For 49%, Marshall will put up $400,000. Yes, I know, Oscar. I know all the terms. Well, then you also know that the contracts will be signed this week, and Marshall want to see our money soon after. Now, Oscar and I are ready with our two-thirds of the money. But your third, uh, Horace's, I mean, uh, doesn't seem to be here. You've written him, Ben's written him, we've all written him. He answers, but there's never a word about whether he's going into this or not. Naturally, you are our sister. We want you to benefit from anything we do. And in addition to your concern for me, you do not want control to go out of the family. That's cynical. But uh, cynicism's an unpleasant way of telling the truth. Hello, and welcome back to The Snob Club. The podcast where we talk about the movie that had the most Oscar noms and no wins. I can't tell this if you're trying to do an accent or are you British Academy Awards. I'm going for a. I'm going for uh. I've been listening to the official Avatar podcast by Nickelodeon. Uh, Viacom, please pay me for that plug. Uh, and in it, they pointed out that in the first episode of Avatar, the first time Zuko talks about his dad, he goes, "My father will be pleased about this." That's what I'm doing. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're at the 14th Academy Awards, uh, and there are other people here. I'm Danny Vincent. I don't have an accent, unfortunately. I mean, you do. It's just not British. <laughs> Chicago. Accent. It's Chicago. Yes, I am Sarah Kanoff. I have been told that I have an accent as well. And I am the little fox, uh, Caleb Bunn, and I have a southern accent, which is relevant to today's movie. Or at least I've been told I have a southern accent. Yeah, whatever. You're from the, the south. Anyway, so what movie are we talking about today? I'll tell you because I do the countdown. It's my segment. Deal with it. Oh, no. What are we going to do, Sarah? <laughs> Sensing some animosity so far. <laughs> the most nominations this year were 11 nominations for Sergeant York. It won two of these. It won Best Actor for Gary Cooper and Best Film Editing. Then, How Green Was My Valley had 10 nominations. It won five of these, including Best Picture, Best Director for John Ford, Best Supporting Actor for Donald Crisp, Best Art Direction, Interior Direction Black and White. This is a fun year where we made these category names only too long. And Best Cinematography Black and White. It's a pretty funny win, that last one. And then another film, a little film known as... um. Citizen Kane. It got nominated for nine Oscars, but only won one, which famously depicted in the hit movie Mank was best original screenplay. Hit movie, yes. Uh, yeah, you know, well, it won more Oscars than Citizen Kane, so it has to be better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I'm just glad it won a Oscar. So yeah, exactly. Don't have to talk about it. <laughs> As I mean, we the other movie we have to cover from that year isn't that great either. But anyway, Citizen Kane got nine nominations and won one, but the movie we're covering today got nine nominations and won none, which is the record at this point that I point out. This is the record on our podcast yet, and it is William Wyler's The Little Foxes. Yes. Sarah, what was this movie nominated for? I'm going to yes. sit. I'm going to get comfy. So, yes, Little Foxes, nominated for nine Academy Awards, um, including Best Picture, Best Director for William Wyler, who, uh, as you mentioned, lost to John Ford. 
for how green was my valley for the second year in a row that he lost to John Ford. Um, and as we've that previously one's best picture too. Um, how green is my valley? No. Uh, let me check. It did, right? Didn't you say that? Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah, I yeah. I thought you meant. I thought you meant last year. I was like, no, not last year. But um, as we've stated before, William Wyler, a friend of the podcast, um, was nominated eleven more times for directing and producing, and won three times. Um, Best actress for Betty Davis, who lost to Joan Fontaine in Suspicion. Um, now, fun fact there that I want to say really quick, unless you had it. Do you have your fun fact? Uh, I probably don't. So go ahead. Uh, <laughs> this is the only Oscar winning performance for a Hitchcock movie. Oh, okay. Um, uh, as we've previously said as well, Betty Davis was nominated nine times and won for Dangerous and Jezebel. Um, Best Supporting Actress for Patricia Collins, uh, who lost to Mary Astor in The Great Lie. Uh, also Best Supporting Actress for Teresa Wright, who also lost to Mary Astor in The Great Lie. Uh, Teresa Wright was also nominated for The Pride of the Yankees and won uh, for Mrs. Miniver, also directed by William Wyler, uh, just the next year. Um, Best Adapted Screenplay um, for Lillian Hellman, uh, but the movie was written by a few other people, which we'll talk about. Um, And that lost to Here Comes Mr. Jordan um, by Sidney Buckman and Seton I. Miller. Uh, Lillian Hellman was also nominated for The North Star, um, best art direction, black and white. That's not I'm going to go. I'm not going to do the interior or whatever. Uh, for Stephen <laughs> Stephen Gerson and Howard Bristol. Uh, and they lost to Richard Day, Nathan H. Jurin, and Thomas Little for How Green Was My Valley. Uh, Dusen was nominated three more times and one for Lost Horizon. And Bristol was nominated eight more times. <clears throat> best editing for Daniel Mandel. Uh, who lost to William Holmes in Sergeant York. Uh, Mandel was nominated one more times and won three times. And he is the most, uh, he is is an editor who has won the most Academy Awards for three. Um, And then best score for dramatic picture, Meredith Wilson, who lost to Bernard Herrmann, All That Money Can Buy. Um, Meredith Wilson was also nominated for The Great Dictator, but he is most known for writing the music and lyrics for The Music Man. Oh, that's where I recognize the name from. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Uh, Mr. Mr. Caleb, what is our... Thank you, Sarah. What is our historical context, Mr. Caleb? Well, this is our second Betty Davis movie that we have talked about. And Betty Davis was a driving force in Hollywood around this time. Of course, she would take over as the first female president of the Academy. Um, I believe this was her first year in 1941 but if not then in 1942 she would and uh around this time she was also heavily involved in the hollywood canteen which starting in 1942 um was a club in hollywood that served allied forces mostly american uh forces but if allied forces were in la they would serve them as well during uh world war ii And Betty Davis was in charge of uh, kind of getting a lot of Hollywood's big stars to come and to help volunteer there, doing different things from like serving the tables to cleaning. um, And of course, a lot of the female stars going there to dance with the soldiers before they sailed out. Uh, It was a pretty big deal. There are a bunch of uh, names that um, showed up there, including like Ingrid Bergman Bergman and uh, Vivian Lee. Um, but basically anyone who was anyone 
and hadn't already shipped out to be part of World War II um, would be involved. And Betty Davis was kind of the driving force there, which just kind of shows the, I'm not sure if respect is the right word, but the influence she had in LA, because I think a lot of people disliked Betty Davis quite a bit. She was a very contentious figure, but she was able to be a very controlling figure at the at the same time, which is pretty impressive. Nice. I mean, we we do like Betty here as much as we remind her of Midler, how she spells her name. Now I'm gonna give the uh, fun facts on the ceremony before we talk about the little foxes. According to Wikipedia, the ceremony is most considered notable because Citizen Kane lost both picture. <laughs> we kind of covered that already, but I think that's funny. Where it's like this is the year where the greatest film ever made didn't win. John Ford won his third Oscar for Best Director, which made him the second person to do that after Frank Capra, but the first person to do this in consecutive years. Apparently the big race of this Oscars was, as usual, Best Actress. Betty Davis was not considered one of the top two. It was Olivia, uh, uh, excuse me, Joan Fontaine who won, and then Olivia de Holland for... The Haviland. Haviland, whatever. (laughs) She was in Gone with the Wind. Uh, How did you get de Holland from de Haviland? (laughs) Because, okay, when I open Discord, which is what we record this on, it doesn't let me minimize the window the whole way so I can read the whole thing. So I see Olivia D, and I just remember it starts with an H. So I'm sorry. All right, uh, all right. All back to Dawn. Uh, this You've was the first too many Spider-Mans. Yeah. I know, right? Too many, too many My favorite can be Smith episode. Uh, this year was the first year for Best Documentary, which went to Churchill's Island. Now, the actual fun fact on the page is about our podcast, which is that, of course, Little Foxes took the record for most nominations about a win. This will be matched in 1957 with a movie we'll announce when we get there, but won't be succeeded until, exceeded until 1977. So we have a while till we'll get more than nine nominations on here. And I, I will say when we get there, I, this is, because it will be a, a couple years from now, I will say uh, we might want to rethink the giving it up for nomination once we reach more than 10 nominations to pick from. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to 1977. Um, now, I think the interesting fact here is that um, Fantasia won two Oscars, despite it not being nominated for anything. It got two honorary Oscars. And Walt Disney won two separate Oscars as well, but not both for Fantasia. He won one of the honorary ones for Fantasia, and then he won the Irving G. G. Thalman Memorial Award this year. So, classic Walt. We love him. Do we? Maybe don't. <laughs> I want to know about this movie. Hold on. I just, there's a special effects has a nomination that was disqualified. I saw that, and I'm not too uh, sure what the story is there. Uh, let's see if the Wikipedia page for it says... So it is uh, Dive Bomber. Uh, Dive Bomber is the movie. It was disqualified. I remember when the movie, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, a few years back, a song got disqualified from the Oscars. Wait, what? Say that again? A couple of years back, a movie got disqualified from the Oscars uh, called Alone Yet Not Alone. It got disqualified. So. Hmm. Now, actually, when I Google Dive Bomber, not a disqualified, I, the thing that comes up is a Hollywood Reporter article that talks about alone yet not alone being disqualified. Their history has no recorded explanation of the substitution, according to Hollywood Reporter in 20, uh, I believe, 16. 
2014. 2014, yeah. The Hollywood Reporter says there is no historic reason why it was disqualified recorded. Hmm. It's a big mystery. I guess so. Seems yeah. like this. I mean, it was about dive bombing. I'm just looking at, you know, they used a blue screen. They used scale models. It seems like it would be a pretty, pretty good pick for best visual effects. But I maybe guess not. The plagiarism. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Actually, you know what the most high profile revoked nomination was? Hmm. It's for a uh, certain movie we definitely won't be covering on this podcast. The Godfather had a disqualified nomination for original score because um, it did not include a fully original score. So, fun fact. Shall we talk about the little foxes? I think we've... We we shall. All right. The little foxes. William Wyler. Betty Davis. Herbert Marshall. I gotta say. Yeah, I gotta say. um, Whenever a movie opens with a title card about the Deep South, I'm usually just like, okay. Also, was this the longest movie we watched yet? That's actually my big question. I think so. I mean, what about Captain Blood? Captain Blood was probably around this length. You're right. Captain Blood was about two hours. It's just that I really only remember the second half, so it didn't feel as long as this did. I mean, Affairs of Cellini felt three times as long (laughs) as this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll I'll give it that. Yeah, uh, Captain Blood was three minutes longer. Yeah, that's the only one I can think of that was reasonably longer. Maybe Aerosmith, but I don't know. Okay, so um, what did you guys think of it? I think it had some really good things going for it and some really bad things going for it. And I'm not quite sure which one out at the end. Um, but I, I will say I've been very impressed with Weiler on this podcast so far and of course the movies i've seen from him outside of the podcast so i was pretty disappointed that this didn't live up to those uh you know didn't live up to dead end or the letter oh i like this a a little bit more than the letter just a little bit i think it does some things better than the letter but i think this is probably the best movie we've watched so far really yeah okay i think this happens at least like once every five <laughs> entire podcasts once every five episodes goes this is the best movie we've watched well i don't think that i've like really <laughs> i don't think that i've like liked well I, I liked aerosmith i guess i just i don't know if any of these movies are movies that i would want to watch again which includes uh little stage foxes door. stage doors oh stage door was good but i i don't know i i just in terms of the overall package, I thought this one was probably the best one that we've watched. I thought it was fine. <laughs> it was a... I, I lost interest at a certain point because of the pacing. I just felt like it didn't need to be as long as it was. There felt like, to me, there's a lot of superfluous scenes. Mainly the romance subplot. I was just like, okay, I don't really Which care. Which we will talk about. I like the ensemble. Uh, I think uh yeah i don't know it's fine like that that was basically i i think it also hints to like some social commentary that it never totally commits to which is a little disappointing the best parts of it were and to credit the person who i'm somewhat stealing this comparison to because it's the most popular review on letterboxd but it's also somebody i follow uh mr patrick williams williams said this is basically succession 
old-timey succession and it even has a cousin greg and as soon as he said that, i was like oh yeah it is and i know i'm the only person on this podcast who watched succession but it's okay you okay. guys should watch it at some point succession <laughs> is better than this movie it's also long <laughs> okay <laughs> oh a whole tv show who knows? yeah three seasons longer than a movie who would have thought <laughs> But yeah, who who wants to lead the way on this one? Because I don't. I will, sure. Um, yeah, so there's a lot going on, but eventually you kind of get the gist of it. So um, Betty Davis plays... I'm going to look up her name. Uh, she plays Regina Giddens, who has two brothers, uh, Benjamin and Oscar. Um, and because she's a woman... Um, she was not entitled to her father's money. Um, so she has a sickly husband that she kind of married for his money. And he is in a sanitarium. Um, so she also has a daughter, Alexandra or Zan, as they call her. Um, and Alexandra has a little boyfriend, which, again, we'll talk about. Um, and basically her brothers have this idea that they're going to open a some type of mill yeah just a mill uh, cotton mill cotton mill and they need uh they need regina's husband to invest but she doesn't want to invest because she wants to have a fair share of the profits um which she is technically not entitled to because again she's a woman more than a fair share she wants yeah a third yes yes um and so uh Am I just going to do the whole thing? <laughs> Are we pausing? Are we? So the movie opens with a title card saying, welcome to the deep south. Yes. I mean, it doesn't say that, but yeah. <laughs> it should. Imagine we just said that. Welcome to the deep south. It does do. And alligators. It does do something that I'm not a huge fan of, which is it, it opens with a Bible verse, but then they say the Bible verse in the movie. Which seems like overkill. <laughs> I don't know. They wanted you to know about the little foxes. I guess so. Um, so it's basically, um, it's it opens with with Zan, um, and she has a little flirtation with David, um, and it's just about Zan, you know, going to her house. They're gonna have this big dinner with her uncles, um, and there's also one other uh, important character is one of the uncles' wives, Birdie. Um, she is nominated bird. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so aside from Betty Davis, Zan and Birdie are the Oscar nominees for acting. And, uh, Birdie is an alcoholic. She's really depressed. She doesn't like her husband. Oh, and the last, there's so many characters. The last, I would say major character is, um, Birdie's son, Leo, who works Boo. at a bank. Yes. I thought, you about to say, I thought you were about to say Bernie Sanders. No. <laughs> uh, Bernie's son is the cousin, Greg. Not that anyone here listening watches Succession, except for somebody. I don't know. God. Please. Just Are you individually <laughs> shouting out viewers or listeners? Yeah. If you watch Succession, you're a cool listener. If you don't, what are you doing? This episode was brought to you by HBO and Viacom. Let this bit <laughs> die, Danny. <laughs> Anyways. So it's like, boys, <laughs> stop. This is my only podcast, so I'm going to talk to myself, I guess. 
Um, here. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the movie. Yes, basically, there's a lot of family drama. There's a lot of contention. Um, Regina is not very nice throughout the entire thing. Zan is very innocent. She's kind of a pushover um, until she's not. David is the worst. Um, but Leo is worse. And yeah, I was about to say, he's. He, there are a lot of bad people in this. Yeah, I think basically every character is pretty unlikable. I guess you're supposed to like Zan. I personally really liked Birdie. Um, you're supposed to like Zan and David, and I think Horace and Birdie are sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Horace is I the like is the dad. Yeah. Horace is cool. Mm, he's kind of he's kind of a jerk, but I his reasons are I guess okay. We live in a society. Yes. This is the Joker, basically. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> is it the Joker? This is the Joker, the Joker origin story. Well, she does wear white face paint, so yeah, we got to get into that at some point. The uh, the wiki story about well, her portrayal. Okay, what I want to talk about, I guess what I really want to talk about is the play. Okay, so the play was written by Lillian Hellman, uh, who also was nominated for the Oscar. Um, in the original play, um, Betty Davis's role was played by Tallulah Bankhead. Um, we've talked about Lillian Hellman and Tallulah Bankhead's, quote, epic feud, quote, unquote, um, so they didn't want to, I mean, it wasn't because of that feud, but they didn't want to live a bankhead near the film because they wanted Betty Davis because she was the, you know, she was the star. Um, there was kind of some disagreement with Davis and Weiler and the studio about how she should portray the role. Um, to Lula bankhead Davis- was... To be clear, I want to put this on Davis's because, you know, we always hear these stories. You know, yeah, yeah, of course. Where, like, uh, of course, famously is uh, Julie Andrews winning for Mary Poppins to hear My Fair Lady was nominated, right? Like, about how Julie Andrews got My Fair Lady stolen from her. In this case, it does say there is record of Betty Davis saying, this should go to Tula Bankhead. I, I really shouldn't be playing this yeah. role. It's hers. Yeah, like, no, Betty Davis her, like, was a fan. <laughs> Betty Davis was yeah. a fan of the portrayal. It, it had more to do with the studio. It had more to do with, you know, Weiler. Um, and Betty Davis, because she was such a fan of Bankhead's performance, she wanted to do it completely different. So, but they wanted her to play it like the show. So she got into a lot of, you know, kind of arguments with Weiler. She wanted to portray Regina as being very cold, as very, you know, just kind of mean, um, versus, you know, Tallulah Bankhead's um, portrayal was much more sympathetic. She was more about fighting for what she wanted, to an extent fighting for her family. Um, so ultimately, uh, Davis ended up walking off of set. Um, they, there's a kind of a rumor that they were going to recast her, but that wasn't true. They just, they wanted her back because it would be more money to <laughs> recast it. Um, they borrowed her from Warner Brothers to go to RKO. Um, and they needed her at RKO because Citizen Kane was such a box office bomb that they needed a success at the box office. Um, but yeah, all this to say. Um, you glossed oh. over some interesting stuff to me, I feel like. Mainly that she left, like, she walked off set and didn't return for a week. Like, yeah. that's a long time in movie making time. Well, and also, uh, I guess one big thing is that I really want to talk about is uh, the fact that there are four additional writers on the film, um, two of which are men. Or it's only, it's only no, it's three additional writers, right? 
or something like that. There's like two men. Yeah. Two men, one woman, and the woman was married to one of the men. Um, And they most significantly added the character of David in the romantic subplot. And I think that you can really tell. They're the ones to blame. Yes. You, you can tell also because the rest of the movie basically is set in the house, too. Yes. You know, like. It's very, like, the just the writing when it comes to Regina, when it comes to Birdie. Like, it, you can tell that it has a certain voice, um, a woman's voice. And then you get to David and he's like, he like negs her and he's just like, just There's- very, yeah, he's. Too over the top. <laughs> There's a part where, and I was on board to like David because he starts off the movie talking about how the uh, the family doesn't pay their like workers properly and all this stuff. And I'm like, heck yeah, go be go be like a union advocate. But then he spends the rest of the movie being a terrible person. Yeah, and like near the end. Um, Zan is like, "There's so much going on, and I just don't understand it." And he goes. Well, I could explain it to you, but I'm not going to. And that kind of wraps up the entire problem with David. <laughs> Is that he just takes away from Zan's agency. Yeah. And when you get to the last scene where Zan confronts Regina, I kind of am like, how'd you get here, Zan? Because every time you even started to do anything, David undercut you. Yeah, he just, like, called her stupid and said, like, she couldn't do anything. And, like, I think the line that really sums up David for me is when he goes, I guess I'm in love with her. (laughs) It's just so, like, noncommittal. I mean, he corrects himself. He's like, no, I do. But, like, David, come on. You could be nice. David sucks. He just, yeah, I, I... I'll be very honest. I pretty disassociated during his scenes. I was staring. None of it really computed. I'm not gonna lie. Here. It I does like, feel. Oh my God, I it don't feels care about this. Very out of place compared to the like. It feels like a different movie because I guess essentially it was kind of a different script. And there's so many characters to keep up with that, like yeah. throwing in one more. <sighs> Especially when he just doesn't feel connected. Yeah. To me. I will say also, by the way, um, this was the last time these two ever worked together. Betty Davis and William Wyler? William Wyler. I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense. It seemed like he was, like, done with her. It sounds like she was done with him, too. Yeah, I think it was a mutual. But, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and her career fell off mid-40s before she kind of had had to make a comeback. So that might be part of it too, was that people were getting tired of working with her. Maybe audiences were getting tired. Obviously not in 1941, but maybe that you can see the seeds of that in Weiler breaking away from her. Yeah. <sighs> and then the movie happens. <laughs> yes. So back to the movie. Yeah. Back to the plot, I guess. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot of like treachery. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of a lot like of backstabbing. Yeah, it's it definitely probably could have been like thirty minutes shorter. It just like 
there's like you get the gist of the scene, but then it keeps going. Like you understand like what the characters are doing and like why they're doing it, but then they just keep talking about it over and over and over again. I liked the beginning of this movie. And then I quickly discovered that the rest of the movie was going to be about the same thing, the same scenes over and over again, with the only real difference being when Horace showed up because he has a different energy than anyone else in yes. the movie. Simply in the fact that he seems tired of it all compared to Yeah, I don't know. I really wonder like how how Weiler like directed him. Because there's scenes where he's literally just like looking off into space. And I don't know I, I if this. I know it's like really it's just weird because it's like it seems like it's like not like he's not doing anything, but he has to like keep a straight face and look like he's like just tired. I think it's. I think he is good when he is against good actors. So I think he works when he is acting against either the brothers or Davis. When he's first introduced, he's acting against the actress playing Zan, who. I don't think is very good. No. Um, she's Oscar nominated. Yeah, she's not very good. Well, <laughs> she's Oscar nominated. <laughs> she was good at the end, I thought, but it, by that point, it was too late. Yeah, which makes me wonder if this is like a direction thing and like a script thing. But that end scene feels like it's from a completely different movie. She was in The Miracle Worker. I mean, like I said, she did win an Oscar the next year with Weiler. Yeah. So. She won. She got three Emmy nominations for that thing I just said. The Miracle Worker. Okay. <laughs> she has like the Miracle Worker. It's been a I've long time since I've seen worker. it. What? The, the made for the made for TV version. I have seen that one, but it's been a long time. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about the uh, claymation one about Jesus. That's a different movie. I probably have seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this is a movie that really lends itself well to a full plot breakdown because it really is just yeah. a bunch of backstabbing. Back well, we could talk about like the end, I guess. Oh, um, I don't want to. Well, we should talk about the end at the end. There's okay. stuff to talk about here before we jump to the end. Okay. I was going to talk about how uh, I was really interested in this movie having such a. So when I say I thought this movie was going to have a lot of social commentary, mainly I think about how the movie opens with these two, these rich people arguing over like stuff that really doesn't matter. And then we cut to the kitchen where the black kids of the neighborhood are just asking for some food. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh cool. This is cool. And then it never did anything like that again. Well, in the yeah. movie. There, is, there is a point where they let um, the, I think her name is Addie, the maid character. Mm-hmm. She kind of gives the, central thesis of the film which is that some people just kind of suck the world dry and those people are bad but there are also other people who just watch them do it and those people are like equally bad and she says this very clearly criticizing the family she's working for in front of the family she's working for and that's really interesting that they felt like that is something a person in her position could get away with um i'm not sure it's i'm not sure it strengthens the movie it might just show that the movie's kind of oblivious to like the realities of turn of the century south but i think that it's it, it kind of shows that there is a consistent 
theme running throughout the movie about economic injustice. I feel like, so the movie is very much a product of its time, of 1941. However, and I mean, yeah, okay, so like, how do I explain this? I think that they, like, all of the Black characters, they didn't go out of their way to make them, like, bad characters. Like, are they stereotypical? Yes. But it isn't something where it feels, like, minstrelly or anything. They play the help. They play, you know, they play, you know, the poor people, things like that. But, like, I don't feel like they're, it's intentionally supposed to be a negative portrayal. The one exception is there's a scene with their, with Cal who has to deliver a message and yeah. they try to play off some comedy about how it's like, oh, I'm bad at delivering messages and because he's implied because he's stupid. Um, but yeah, I think... There was one, yeah, there was one part at the beginning where uh, one of them was like, the food isn't staying warm. And I was like, I don't like the way you're delivering these lines at all. Yeah, like it is, it's very stereotypical. It's very, you know, there's definitely some dialects going on. Um, but it's not like, it's not like the letter. It's not like, you know, it's. It's not it, as. It's kind yeah. of like the letter, though. It's not as explicit. It doesn't like because the, I think because the movie has a more serious tone, I think because the movie does kind of talk about. Um, you know, these kind of, you know, class divides. And I honestly think because it is like a post Gone with the Wind movie, post Hattie McDaniel win, I think that it's it's just done a little bit differently. It's that, like I said, definitely a product of the time, but, you know, gradually kind of a step up from where, what we've seen so far. Yeah, I think it's where it's similar to the letter is that it is a movie that's flirting with um, like calling out their white characters, but because it is made by people so secure in their white privilege, it never is able to like really move past those stereotypes. Now guys, this movie, this is what I think is interesting about behind the scenes is this is movie has a cameo from a very popular athlete at the time uncredited, a uh, black athlete who ended up not yet. Uh, this didn't happen. He wasn't signed until 1946, but he was playing for the Hollywood Bears beforehand, which was a minor league. So he was playing football at the time this movie came out. Kenny Washington is the first African American to sign a contract with the NFL, mm. uh, and he uh, he's in this movie as a servant. Uh, uh, yeah, he he's a football player. Uh, he was considered the most brilliant player uh, the in the U.S. last year in 1940 by Time Magazine for the College All-Star Game. And he lead it, he led a uh, movie called While Thousands Cheer, which is missing, uh, sadly. It's a film that is missing. It's a mostly African-American cast. And he played a guy named Kenny. It's a football melodrama. Uh supposed to be based on true stories of gambling corruption and footballs at a black college uh the reception and variety was good like very positive but the film is lost sadly Mm. so i guess he was in a movie beforehand and then he must have just wanted to like show up in this too 
don't know. Maybe like William Wyler was a fan of the movie, or maybe William Wyler just liked football and invited him on set. Um, because he played uh played in Hollywood, obviously, you know. So, and then he played for the Rams after he played for the Hollywood Bears, and he played for UCLA in college. So, football. Yeah. He also eventually uh campaigned for Richard Nixon. <laughs> but... <laughs> yes. I, am, I am I am reading that on his thing. But he then he then switched over and voted for JFK. Um, okay, good. so redemption <laughs> arc. He did campaign for Richard Nixon, though we can't Oh, but he was also a cop. <laughs> but whatever. Uh he, w- he did make another cameo in the uh, Jackie Robinson story. I presume as himself. But it doesn't actually... No, he played actually... A- he played a character. He played a manager of the Tigers. Hmm. Anyway. Kenny Washington. Yes. Need- this movie needed more football. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> it needed well, something. It I don't know. football. So... What if what if instead of a romance subplot, there's a football subplot? There is a subplot about some bonds that Horace has at the bank, which Leo works at. And when it becomes clear that Horace does not want to join in on this business venture, um, the uncles pressure Leo into stealing these bonds, which kind of drives the drama of the third act. Leo is a confusing character because he's introduced and at first you think he's just like an idiot. Like he's just kind of this naive idiot who doesn't know what's going on, but then it quickly becomes clear that he just, he's a terrible person who's just like entitled. Um, and also not very smart, but I feel like the movie never quite, knows whether or not we should be concerned about Leo or not. Cause he seems like he seems like the kind of guy who he would end up getting himself caught if he didn't have his uncles around. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just it's meant to be kind of a contrast between or like a I guess a parallel between um you know between Regina and Zan and then Leo and his uh his dad i don't it's it's either vet or oscar i don't know which one it's um oscar there's also a so their plan before they do the bonds thing is to uh this is very questionable is to have zan and leo get married um so that the money can all be kind of pulled together um and it's kind of it's kind of an interesting moment because it's like the only time where Horace and Regina agree that that's not going to happen. Um, so it kind of shows like, you know, it's just, it's very, there's a lot of layers to it. There's a lot of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, basically Leo is just used as a pawn, um, for Ben and Oscar. And he does seem kind of like a bumbling idiot. Um, but ultimately, yeah, he does, he does do the bonds. Um, and Horace finds out, and it becomes another moment of contention between the whole family. You can't say anything about Leo. You guys have told me I'm not allowed to say anything anymore about him. So, 
Because my only comments on him are succession references. Okay. Oh, well, okay. I will say um, the scene where he does uh, take the bonds. Is it when he takes the bonds? Or when he, I think it is. Or no, it's the scene where, it's a scene where Horace finds out about the bonds. And he goes to the bank. Uh, really good scene. <laughs> Leo has some actually pretty good acting for being a bubbling idiot, which I, I liked. I will also say that whenever, whenever the, the three, like the triumvirate of siblings are on screen, Betty Davis and the two brothers. I think there is a lot of fun energy that the movie picks up and that these three actors play off of each other. Well, um, and then, you know, as we've mentioned, whenever Zan comes on screen, the movie gets bogged down in her subplot. And then um, I think that, you know, Herbert Marshall is only as good as the people he's acting against. Um, but I think that's why the end of the film picks up so well is because most of the end of the film is uh, these three siblings talking to each other. I just like... I like death. And Horace dies. Horace does die. And he dies a, pr- a pretty horrific death, too. Yeah. He was probably in a lot of pain. Um, so basically, uh, Horace... The whole movie, Zan just constantly says, Please stop it, Mom! You're going to kill yes. Dad! Stop it! Stop it! So stop! basically... Uh, Regina finds out about the bonds and she's like, oh, this is great because now we can blackmail, you know, my brothers. And Horace is like, well, I'll just say that it was a loan from you. Um, And he says something like, you know, uh, it's like a loan, you get the money back. An investment, you get more money. Um, So his entire purpose is that his entire intent is that she will not get any of the profits. Um, And he says he has given all of his money to Zan. Um, he's going to give only a little bit to Regina. Um, she gets really mad at him. They have, they have another fight because they have multiple fights. Um, he ends up having a heart attack and, um, instead of helping him right away, she lets him suffer for a little bit and then calls the help to make it seem like she just became aware of it. Uh, he dies a really horrific death, probably in a lot of pain. And ultimately, um, she gets away with it. Where was, where's the yeah. hands code when we need them? Yeah, the brothers eventually concede to giving her a majority control over the ownership. Um, the brother Ben has a great monologue about how it's like, yeah, you beat me today, but we're all the same, and I could win tomorrow. The world's full of you know, greedy people like us. And we're all, we'll all get along while we can because it helps us get profit. But, you know, I'm going to be coming for you when I get the chance, which I like that scene a lot. Um, and that kind of motivates um, Zan to confront her mother about what she believes and accurately believes is the mother's part in her father's death. R.I.P. Dad. Yeah, what's a what's a man who uses a wheelchair doing on the stairs? Dun dun dun! Yeah, and like, <laughs> Cam's like, what's going on here? <laughs> well, it's it's such a weird scene because Zan 
confronts her mother and basically is like, I I was willed all the money, all of our dad's money, so I'm just leaving. Your whole dream about us going to Chicago so you can vicariously live through me, that's out. Um, and she kind of, and she's like, I don't want to be one of the people who just sits and watch other people suck up the world. I want to fight people like you. And then Bette Midler, or I did it. I did it again. Yeah. And no one, no one, I, I've been calling her Betty this episode. Yeah. But you so, brought up uh, Bette Midler at the beginning. Yeah. Betty Davis. Like 40 minutes ago. <laughs> don't, don't blame me for this. Betty Davis. <laughs> She doesn't. She doesn't explicitly threaten to kill her, but am I? Are, do you guys agree that that is kind of her intent in inviting her upstairs? No, I didn't get that at all. Interesting. So I thought. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So for the for the listener, um, they have this argument, and then Betty Davis is at the top of the stairs, and Zan is at the bottom, and then the music kind of takes on this kind of creepy sound and kind of quietly Betty Davis goes, why don't you come up and sleep in my room tonight? And I thought that was very threatening. See, I think that Zan's line um, when she says, are you afraid? I think that that kind of summed up what I interpreted from the conversation. I, Cause she looks at, so she looks at Horace's room where his body is. And to me, um, it seemed to me like Regina was, actually afraid like she actually wanted some comfort because her husband had just died um Mm -hmm. and i think that it was her last i think it was her last attempt at controlling zan and kind of bringing zan back to her um and yeah zan just didn't just didn't buy into it i think that's a better reading of this scene than what i had um but I think either way, I don't, like I mentioned before, I don't understand where Zan became, when Zan became so confident. And I wish the film had done more service to her character leading up to this scene. Because this ending is really good. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry, guys. I don't, I don't, I, I, this is a movie where I'm like, there's not much to say here. For me, at least. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disappoint. I'm more interested in Kenny Washington. And I am in the my man, my woman, Betty. How do y'all feel about Betty Davis compared to last week? Mm. I liked her more last week. She had more monologues. She didn't. She also was playing a character that had like more of a depth to it. I felt like than how she played this. I think she's very miscast because I feel like it should be noted she's she was thirty three at the time. The actress playing Zan, Teresa Wright, was twenty three. <laughs> So it just, and compared to how the brothers looked as well, she just looks so much younger. Um, she She's not even, she's like, she's like the Hannibal Lecter of this movie. She's called the lead, but she's not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think she has enough natural charisma that I don't, I don't not enjoy her. And she is like, she holds her own in these scenes. Um, but I do feel like, she i expect more from a betty davis role i guess and it felt like she was playing second fiddle to everyone else in the cast i don't even think she was the best actress in this we haven't even talked about who i think is the best 
You must mean David's mother. Who? I like Brett Midler. <laughs> I yeah, I had to take a minute and think about the only other actress besides the one you're talking about. I'm of course referring to Birdie, who I generally generally with these old movies, so they always have some random part that is like for no reason is like nominated. It seems like they have no effect on the rest of the movie. They're usually only in one scene. Um, my girl Birdie killed it. Um, what's her what's the actress's name? Bird. Bird, bird, bird. Patricia. Okay, you gotta stop. Uh <laughs> Patricia Collins. Um so Birdie, like like we said, is the the alcoholic aunt. And she, she's an alcoholic aunt, and she warns uh, Zan. She's like, you don't want to be like me. Um, she has this really, really good monologue. And it is really good, but at the same time, it goes on for too long. Um, but it is very good, and it's just a really good scene of, like, um, Addie and Horace and Zan um, and Birdie. And then David's, like, also there, but he, his back is to the camera, so we don't even see his reactions. Um, and they do that a, they do that a few times actually <laughs> where somebody's back is turned i don't think we would have gotten many great reactions from david to begin yeah. with <laughs> um but it's just it's a really i think that normally i would say like oh it's, it's a nothing part like there's no reason for her to be nominated but i think that kind of like how you were saying caleb like Zan needed that like push. That's like the closest thing we get to Zan realizing that she needs to get away is Birdie's influence. And she also straight up says that she doesn't like Leo, which is fantastic. Oh, which reminds me. The most relatable part of the movie. We have to talk about David and Leo's showdown. <laughs> uh, they're ex- neither of them show up after this, right? <laughs> Well, David is there at the end. He's walking with okay. Zan. But uh so so um so Leo says cuz the brothers want Horace to be okay so that they can, you know, get his money, whatever. And Leo David shows up and he's like, "I got to see Horace. I got to make sure he's okay." And Leo says like, "Oh, he's fine." And then David gives him the most dainty slap. <laughs> And then he like does like the back and forth. Like a fish. <laughs> it feels so out of place. Oh. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Fair. If you like flicked Leo, he would he would crumple. This boy has never faced any type of physical harm in his life. So even the lightest slap from David. <laughs> Would you guys watch the prequel to this movie? Did they the make the foxes? Did they make a prequel? Did they make the prequel into the into a movie or was it yes. just oh Frederick March? It's called mm. Another Part of the Forest. So is this about like the family? Because Birdie's family used to be like the big family in this part of the country, and then the other family kind of took over and bought out all their. So is that what it's about? Is it about no. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, the lead of it is their father of uh, Regina and all of them. The evil people. Frederick March plays the Brian Cox of my succession comparison. 
uh, and it's just them taking over. It's the movie. Um, theoretically, yeah. The one thing that kind of holds me off is that the movie seems to want us to be sympathetic to Birdie's family because they had their wealth stolen from them, but also they ran a plantation, so I can't be that sympathetic. Can I say, um, another part of The Forest was nominated for two Ryder Gill Awards. One of them was Best Written American Drama, okay, but the other one was, uh, Screenplay dealing most ably with problems of the American scene. Wow. It's a great, pretty great a award. Great title. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't win, sadly. The other award this one was um the big award that this movie won, the the the, the little foxes, was that Reg- Regina was ranked number 43 of best villains of American cinema by AFI. Hmm. She's, Which, I mean, she's okay. I wouldn't. Yeah. I feel like, especially if you just take all Bette Midler's roles, you can probably find several villains that are better. Like the Sanderson yeah, like, sisters. Yeah, like the Sanderson sisters. Like uh, Grandma Adams. From did the I movies. do it again? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> well, to be fair, I think I think if you take both Bette Midler and Betty Davis's. <laughs> Get them. Yeah, I would say I'm. A, I think the Sanderson sisters are a bit scarier. Than Wait, I guess. Well, if we're talking about Betty Davis specifically, she does have one role that is like the like is like the most villainous role, and that would be as as Jane and what happened to Baby Jane. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sure that ranks higher on this list. Like if if. If the little foxes ranked on this list, yes. what happened to Baby Jane has to have. That awkward moment where you win two Oscars in 35 and 38 and then just keep getting nominated for a street career. Yeah. All right. Can we can we, can we wrap it up? I'm done. Sure. I'm done with little foxes. I'm done. I'm done. Canceled. Little foxes ever, is canceled. Were you ever not done, Danny? I want to talk about succession and I was told I can't because no one here watches it. I just said you couldn't you shout out individual me. people. Go cousin Greg, big fan. Anyway, is that Nicholas Tom. Brown? Yeah, Terminal <laughs> Tom, Matthew McFadden, who was on the trailer for my what DVD? I watched Brokeback Mountain and the it's trailer. Pride and Prejudice. Like, yeah, and I'm always like, oh, it's weird to hear him with a British accent. I feel like if I ever watched that movie, I'm gonna be really thrown because Tom is not a anyway. Succession, watch it. HBO, please pay me. Uh. Jason Killar, come on, pay up for the sad. This is not sponsored. And it will never uh, be sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> TCM should sponsor us. Um, all right, so it was nominated for nine Oscars. Sarah, what were they? Yes, okay. Best Picture, Best Director for William Wyler, Best Actress for Betty Davis, Best Supporting Actress for Patricia Collins, Best Supporting Actress for Teresa Wright, Best Adapted Screenplay for Lillian Hellman, Best Art Direction Black and White for Stephen Goosen and Howard Bristol, Best Editing for Daniel Mandel, and Best Score for Meredith Wilson. Um, my choice is, honestly, there's only one of these I can remotely consider giving in my opinion and that's art direction that was cool sets cinematography is nominated maybe 
Although I get why it wasn't nominated for cinematography because Mr. Greg Tolan had a certain better movie out that yeah. year. And I'm not going to give it cinematography. That's why I'm shouting it out now. Um, art direction. Wow. It's my choice. I've already said who I would give it to. I would. I mean, Patricia Collins as Birdie. Loved her. Thought, he was, thought she was great. I was tempted to just give it to Weiler because... Even though I didn't love this, I've enjoyed all three of his movies immensely more than anything else we've watched for the podcast. Um, but I think this has a good score. And so I think I'll give it to score. Well, I want to have it on the record that none of us wanted to give it to a woman. I did give Wait. it to a woman. Yeah. Isn't no. the composer also a woman? No. No. <laughs> No, that's why I mentioned made the joke because it's a deep oh, okay. narrative. But I, I still know. gave it to a woman, so it's right. not even a good I was joke. Just doing it a little, I was just looking at Lillian Helvin's credit. It's like, listen, sorry, Lillian. all I know is that I liked the music in here. Have I got a musical for you? <laughs> I, I like I the mean, music. You've got man, trouble so. right here. Right here. Uh, so, what nomination would you give it? I'm going to give this to Best Supporting Actor for Charles Dingle, who played um, uh, Uncle Ben. He was really fun, and I feel like he perfectly kind of played into the I'm a rich bastard, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make money. Um, so I enjoyed him. I think I am going to go with cinematography. Uh, it wasn't, like, great. I mean, it, okay, it wasn't, like, amazing, but um, some some shots were really good, like um, the bank scene, like the part when Leo like realizes that Horace is there. There's like a really cool shot of him like behind the bars of the bank, which looks really cool. It's like a cool like metaphorical shot or whatever. Um, so yeah, I would go with that. Now, before I say what I'd give it to, I realized in the past few weeks what my go-to is I'm giving it because it's convenient because it's not an award at this time, which is costume design. And let me tell you, I was tempted. I was tempted to give this one that one. But Betty Davis has a very nice dress at the end. However, I'm going to give it supporting actor Herbert Marshall. I thought he was the only character in this movie I liked. And I thought he did a good job. He underplays it when everyone else is going big. And I like that. Yeah. So, Herbie. Herb. 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 All right. So, who wants to know what we're talking about next week? Me, me, pick me. Do we have a choice? Uh, actually, you do. You always have a choice. <laughs> you can always say no. We can just be done. Last episode. Excel. Thanks for listening. <laughs> the little foxes uh, did us in. Next week, we will be doing a two-parter. So we'll only be doing one film, obviously, next week. Or next time, rapper. It's at the 15th Academy Awards. They got seven nominations. And it stars a certain man who really likes the rock and roller coaster. It is Random Harvest, a film by Mervyn Leroy. It has Ronald Coleman in it. That's the Aerosmith <laughs> reference. I didn't understand that at all. <laughs> it's like Steven, Steven Tyler? This is from the director of Caleb's favorite movie of House Sparks, Gold Diggers of 1933. Oh, yeehaw. Wait, can we watch the other but, one? Because this one looks so much better. <laughs> we'll watch the other one the week after. We'll save the other one for later. 
Like, you know, like it also has Ronald Coleman in it. Okay. This is what I'm really interested in. We we liked we liked Ronald Coleman earlier, but do you think (laughs) we didn't? (laughs) Yeah, do you think he's gonna hold up like in the forties? You know, the other movie does look way better. <laughs> I'm looking it's at got Cary Grant in it. Like, come on. I want to see Cary Grant. Well, I, I think you should get the one that looks lamer out of the way first. Is there like a hierarchy? Did they did one of them get nominated for picture? Or uh, I'd have to look at that. But that is how I generally have them ordered. Is that the one that has the higher nomination first is the one we'll cover. First. Interesting. Um, well, I can't say I'm looking forward to this. Because I've never heard of this movie. So, well, I'm Danny Vincent. <laughs> you can uh, catch me on my other podcast, Why is the Time Dan? We're talking about Spider Man right now. It's the time. <laughs> uh, you can also follow me on Letterboxd at Blackness for my reviews. On the bright side, on my letterbox, you know what I can't review? Succession, because it's a television show. So be happy. All right, I'm Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my myriad of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, All New 52, Star Wars Therapy. Um, And thank you to our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe! Thanks, Joe. Wow, certain and thank you. Oh, I literally just did. Coming in late. Yeah, whatever. I said it first. Yeah, and you I'm also probably peed your mic. I'm sure he appreciates that. Um, <laughs> I'm Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-K-A-Y 29. And you can find me on Letterbox, just my name, Sarah Knopf. You can find me on my website, uh, art, And you can find us, The Snub Club, on Facebook, just The Snub Club, um, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, and Twitter, Snub Club Pod. Join us next time for a random harvest. Hey, hey, Danny. Danny. What? What do the little foxes say?